sometimes But don't be afraid to be a source of light Peace, good people. Thank you so much for building community with us. You are here for another episode of Soul Affirmations with Felicia and Kariga. Yes, welcome to another episode of Soul Affirmations with Kariga and Felicia. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to persist. Okay, I'll, I'm going to ride with that. <laughs> no, I, I, like, I like being able to do that. Um, I like coming to the space with you. I do. I, I like being able to be in a space with you in partnership this way where we get to refine <laughs> what challenges us, refine, refine the practice of love. Absolutely. And refining it in such a way that provides access to our people, right? Mm-hmm. So they can kind of get a, a page open of the book of practice because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I want nothing more than for us to love more abundantly. Yes. However, wherever we practice love. Yes. So when we started the soul affirmation series, we started talking about how you and I met. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about our experience with loss and what brings us here. Mm-hmm. We've talked about radical gentleness. Uh. And now we're, approaching the conversation that I certainly look forward to. A conversation that I think will give the listener an idea, well, not even an idea, give them more of a frame of your lens as a practitioner in in understanding grief. And um, I want to start this conversation with an affirmation if you have your book, turn to page. Touch your neighbor. With consent. With consent. <laughs> and turn to page 16. <laughs> no, but seriously, um, this affirmation, I think, is so critical to understanding the practice of choosing to practice love. It is the... Mm. It's very clear, and it comes from your experience that we're going to talk about more in depth today. Yeah. And it is love as a philosophy is much easier than love as a practice. But when we choose to practice love, it will challenge our philosophy and change the way we respond to what challenges us. Today, Today, I choose to practice practice love. Wow. Wow. I take a deep breath for this journey. Mm -hmm. It comes with so much joy, but so much reverence for every challenge along the way. Mm. So that affirmation is contextualized by my time in D.C. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. All right. Let's shake it down. That's how we go. It happens this way. I end up in D.C. after Hampton, Virginia, Hampton University. Um. I completed a a bachelor's in sociology. Sociology gave me the lens to see where my people were. Mm -hmm. And the work I wanted to do with young people, I was able to see that the law only required them to go two places, schools or jails. (laughs) The only place they were mandated to be, schools or jails. 
And I worked in the juvenile halls in undergrad. Remember that? I do. This was in Newport News. Downtown Newport News. And I worked in group homes as well in California. So I was intersecting with this population, wondering how I could forge the relationships to transfer what I was learning. What I did not expect is following my time at Hampton, I would apply for a program. <laughs> this is a unique conversation in a black love space. Um, I applied for a program known Teach for America. I was in the DC08 cohort. I did my work. I did my practice up in Philly, my institute. Um, and I was on track to earn a master's in special education. Now, how did you get to special education? Because you, you talk, you're telling us about your experiences in sociology. Because when you're applying for Teach for America, you at that point, you have three um, interests. I remember one of my interests was like uh, English. One of my interests was maybe say social studies can't remember but I know my third and the one that I was least <laughs> thought I would least likely get because I was least interested mm -hmm. was the special education cohort and I was admitted and awarded a spot in the special education <laughs> cohort and I said this is I had at that point I had no clue the intersection was going to place me on hmm. so I go on to earn a master's in special education and now I'm teaching in DC uh, Special education. Now, I want to yeah. um, kind of refresh my memory. Uh-huh. You were teaching in D.C. while you were earning your master's in special education. Correct. So these, you, this program is happening simultaneously with your experience. There's a name for it. I, I, I forget what the name is that they called it when I was an undergrad, where you actually go and observe a classroom. Your oh, field yeah. experience. Field experiences. <laughs> yes. Yep. So. So you're, you're having the field experience in the classroom yeah. and you're earning your master's in special education. So like three times a week, I'm going to the, to my academic study yeah. to refine, yeah. to discuss what I'm observing, yeah. to try to make it make sense. Yeah. Okay. And what you're observing is happening where? Southeast DC. Okay. Transition Academy at Shad. It is no longer open or operating largely in part because it was not founded on moral principle. Um, all of these students were put in one building no matter what neighborhood they were from because they were identified as having an emotional disturbance. Most broad, most erroneous classification, it lacks moral investigation. It lacks the true care that the young folks need when you group them together like this. But firstly, they were all grouped together because of a disability which is not okay, okay, which is illegal, um, I okay? I was getting ready to say that. Yeah. What, what I do remember from undergrad when I had to start taking those education courses at the end of my program, uh -huh. we have a section on IDEA. Correct. And it's like one of the bullet points. Like you do not put yeah. all these students who have the same disability under in one space. Like you don't crowd them in one space. No. Yeah, you brought up IDEA. Shout out to the uh, academic over there. 
So, so this is the early context, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, but that's how I got there. Okay. I want you all to know how I got there. Because you're also hearing that I got there as a youth coming to age in South Sacramento, one of eight children. And looking at my social, it's like my socialization experiences, um, what education and access and opportunity did for me. I knew there was a huge responsibility to transfer this information to my people. It was not about me getting this information to create separation. I knew it that early that I had to transfer what I learned, largely in part because my tuition at Hampton at the time was more than my parents were earning. And I had a moral conflict surrounding how many, how much resources I would have to absorb to get this education and what it could be doing for my siblings and my family. That was the psyche for me at that point. So now I'm teaching and I'm first realizing that there was my first responsibility as according to the district was around standards, right? Having my classroom engaged with certain standards up and having my lessons and my lesson plans, all these things from that lens. There was not an emphasis anywhere in my training for education nor in my practice that was emphasizing the role of building healthy relationships. Mm. That's not part of the framework. You don't learn that. Although I also know now that it, it, the foundation of learning rests on trust, mm. right? And our students will only move at the speed of trust. So I am in the classroom learning who they are, learning what their power, what their, what their strengths, what their agency is, despite everything else I'm seeing, and the intersection that brings me to the practice of love first and most boldly was when a young person from my class was suspended and I advocated that they should not be suspended and they still were suspended. And while on suspension, they were shot and killed. I had to I had to go inside myself and and search for some pathway of reconciliation with my own judgment, my role in the system. So that begins the early part of my poetry. That was my first expressive narrative therapy. I don't know why I feel like this is my very first time vividly remember I was at Shad at the time Mm -hmm. and I recognized that there was a hierarchy of power and decision making in schools and I needed to get access to the decision making agency that would keep our young people safe and keep schools accountable that's weird so after I was a teacher then you weren't I wasn't I wasn't a dean yet So after three years of teaching in that school from its opening to its closing, then I became the Dean of Students at Maya Angelou Public Charter. And I brought with me these competencies around showing up for students, around building relationships, around building trust as a foundation for learning. And I would have the responsibility to try to transfer these habits of mind and these framework to classrooms, teachers, and leadership alike. So now I am 
a dean of a, a school that it, to me is just like, it's one of my favorite places, favorite colors, favorite textures, favorite memories of DC. These young people had all the style, all the sauce, all the flavor, all the humor, all the character, all the resilience, all the critical thinking. They were so brilliant. I smile and I laugh because I remember these students. Listen. I also remember being at Hampton and seeing like that DC style and yeah. not understanding it. Uh-huh. <laughs> you move there and then you kind of you get it, you right? Get it. It's like, "Oh, y'all are fresh." Like <laughs> And and you've been black forever. Oh, you've been black so long and just beautifully black. It's yeah, just... your your city gave you a different hope and imagination even though crack did what it did. Mm-hmm. You had this ability to see future for yourself that was dc then Mm -hmm. not dc now what an assault but we're going into me being a dean in the space right so i had some young people who knew me from when i was teaching because they also came to this high school okay so i had some existing relationships in that space Mm -hmm. but mostly a lot of new relationships in that space I'm, i'm loving it around this time i'm loving it around me realizing, you know, I had a young person who was sent to my office repeatedly, repeatedly. And each time he came to my office, he was disengaged with any conversation I had to offer him. <laughs> so it got to the point where I'm like, I'm not about to keep talking to you. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to play myself. We go. So I go back to my station and I, and I'm at this point, it's like my lunch. He's still in there, doesn't want to go anywhere else, but doesn't want to engage with me. <laughs> so, so difficult. This is exactly what I'm facing. So I go to writing some rhymes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I did on my breaks. I would I would synthesize my experience to write some rhymes. He comes behind my desk and says to me, What you doing? <laughs> I said, I'm working on music. And he says these exact words. Oh, you play any instruments or you just write, you just write raps? <laughs> do you actually play any instruments or do you just write raps? How are you going to minimize your How your dare you? How dare you? How dare you finally engage with me for the first time like this? And <laughs> this young person would become critical to my work. Uh, one of my first mentors in grief. One of the first people to teach me that we needed a new lens in education. This young person, hey, Trey, I love you. He experienced the loss of three brothers within a span of a year, slightly over a year, three brothers. And what I didn't understand then is that he was actually going to school with a sibling of someone who took his brother's life. And every day he was having to come to this place to learn, and they called his unavailability acting out Mm -hmm. i state that as one of the first relationships in that school because we would fast forward a couple years into my work as a dean building relationships now we thriving right Mm -hmm. so by this time i'm making music i have some videos that y'all should look at uh, from this time (laughs) i could point you in the direction to roses Mm -hmm. by me and I can point you to another song called Fly Away. Okay. 
these videos were filmed inside the schools that I taught at. But I shot them on Saturdays because I was the dean at Saturday school. So after Saturday school, I would go into production. Once they saw the first video, kids who were truant to school every day of the week were at Saturday school early. (laughs) At Saturday school early. Many of them didn't even have Saturday school and was there because they heard Bailey was shooting a video. (laughs) Now, just check this. Like, let's just say this clear. It was amazing to see what was happening when the learning was unpacking and they could see something happening for themselves. They were interested now. I think about the young folks who came to be production assistants and went on to have booming careers in film. (laughs) Right? Booming careers. Like, you really did that. I never forget when he asked me how much a house costs in my neighborhood. And I was renting at the time. And I'm like, what do you mean how much does a house cost in the neighborhood? You ready to buy? Like, <laughs> but I want to just say that because that also happened, right? Southeast. So we're making this music. Art is helping me build relationships in the school, helping me build trust. They see stories that represent their lived experiences. They see somebody who's willing to be honest and, and, and humanize their experiences and speak of the love that they deserve and start to put lens of of love instead of judgment on their actions so we can start to see who they are and why they're showing up that way, Mm -hmm. right? Start to investigate some of that trauma. And now the music is happening in the school and students are interested and have a creative writing class after school, right? And um, I get a grant to put together the Maya Angelou Mm mixtape. So now I have an engineer coming to the school and I'm not excluding anybody, right? My only prerequisite is that you were in school that day to come record. And then we found out who was actually really brilliant because I can tell by the way you write raps that I know you understand everything happening in English and I understand you understand everything about the essay the teacher's asking you to write, but you aren't writing it. But I know that the way you're writing those raps, you're brilliant. So now I'm having relationship with English teachers, right? holding certain students to a standard that represents their learning because they're that brilliant. Disengaged or otherwise, schools have been places where trust has not been found. There's no safety, so how can you learn? But we jamming. We are making music. We write a school song, Trayvon. The one who asked me, do I actually play instruments or do I only write raps? (laughs) He became like the A&R of that entire project he was recruiting other students if he knew he heard somebody singing in the hallway he wanted to come sing a part he was stacking harmonies y'all and he's (laughs) recruiting i remember i literally remember him talking to parents about letting his classmates participate in this and wasn't he like a freshman at this time he was a sophomore he was a sophomore he was definitely a sophomore (laughs) running the play (laughs) so now we're putting together the maya angelou mixtape uh i commissioned Jamal to do the cover art. He did a mural of Dr. Maya Angelou at the school. That was the cover art for the album. Now we're recording and now I'm hearing new voices from all over the school. People are coming to record. It's happening. It's booming. I also just want to acknowledge that I was rocking with uh, Yusha Asad at the time. 
so I had a I had a brethren who I met through Teach for America, and we connected. We was just mad close. And I knew he was a brilliant math teacher. So I recruited him from his school to come teach at my school because I knew he had a math vacancy. And but I knew that by having him in the building, he would be so much more than a math teacher. He could help me hold culture. This year, like the investment and the interest is so high. Students are just there. They want to be around. Yeah. Right. Learning is evident because trust is there. When trust happens uh, and you call forth their strengths, yeah. uh, then you can then they'll let you see their vulnerabilities yeah. and and they'll let you hold them accountable to growth. But that can only happen when trust happens. Mm -hmm. And because they have so many academic deficiencies often, I'm not letting you in. I remember how off the chain Yusha's students were. He was at the middle school and I did not often go downstairs because I, let me just tell everybody like this. <laughs> Parents of middle school children, teachers of middle school, I have a deep love and respect for you. Uh, middle school is a psychosocial crisis. Oh my God, it's like <laughs> They don't know what they want. They don't know if they're big people, little people. They don't know if they're mature. <laughs> they don't know. If, oh, and they- They got these big, big bodies, but these little oh, cognitive brains. It's and they're trying so hard and now they're getting big and now they get an attitude and now they're- Oh diff- man, they're the best. Oh, they're- They will well, challenge you. They will teach you to love what challenges ooh, you. Oh, yes, they will. <laughs> and it was so fascinating. It's like, and then they're no longer teenagers anymore. So they put you, I mean, like middle schoolers. So they put you through all of that and then they grow to be somebody else. And it's like, so why did you make, why did you put me through all those challenges for those three years if you were going to grow to be somebody else? Yeah. Deep breath, come back to it. But I bring up Yusha because he earned the highest math scores in the District of Columbia with the most truant students at the time. The highest math scores, period. Not just in our school, in the District of Columbia. A black male math teacher, artist, curator, came here and performed. We're now having the listening party for the mixtape. Everybody's in my office. I get a phone call from Sacramento. My brother, I hear something in his voice I've never heard. And he's telling me that our brother, Kareem Johnson, was just shot and killed. I'm in my office. I remember looking out the windows that had like the uh, like the, the grill on it. I'm looking out the window and Trayvon, the student who I've been telling you all about, ushers everyone out my room. He ushers every student out my room. I have not said a word yet. He is so familiar with grief. He read my body language and got every young person out of the office and put his arms around me so I wouldn't collapse. My students were my first mentors in grief. They were my first teachers. Literally the first ones to wrap their arms around me. I hadn't gotten home to Felicia yet. They were literally the first ones to wrap their arms around me. The first ones to see me cry and understand why. The first ones to feel the rage in my body. And they always told me I understood, but they never wanted me to understand like this. So at this point, there is no difference between me or them. As a human being experiencing loss, as a black male, as a black person, there's no difference. I understand their position. I understand their pain. I understand the conflict of having him come to school. 
in a space where he doesn't feel safe. I understand how hard they were trying to show up. I understand them coming late, but still coming. I understand them trying their best. I understand the RIP tattoos on their flesh. I understand the rest in peace shirts, the rest in peace embroidery on the helis, on the spider jackets. I, I remember, I see why there was clouds of smoke on the way to the building in the morning. I understand the stress. I understand the anguish. I understand the hopelessness. And because I had begun working to see them in love and not judgment, prior to my loss, many of them became my mentors. They cared for me differently. They understood me differently. They advocated for me in other parts of DC. When I went on to the next school, they advocated for me. They told them, they told the other students who's coming, what type of person he is. Some of them wouldn't even show up there <laughs> if they heard I was getting disrespected. Like, hey, ho, Slim. Hey, what y'all not going to be doing is disrespecting my man, Slim. <laughs> hey, 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 oh, what about this? Uh, <laughs> hey, Mo, Bailey, Bailey, y'all cool for real, ja man. Cool for y'all need to chill. <laughs> <laughs> hey, kill, Mo. What'd he say? Hey, listen. No, I just want to shout out one of the counselors at the school. His name, I love him, Jesse Sneed. He's a uh, soul <laughs> affirmations listener and supporter. Yes, uh, Doctor, Doctor Sneed Dr. now. Sneed, and he was also my my classmate. Yes. Yeah, so, so it was so dope also because there was like this circuit of black academics and professionals and students in training and we would often intersect. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of inter overlap between Howard University students and Maya Angelou Public Charter. And whether we're getting their training or their credential or their hours. But I never forget uh, Dr. Sneed. He was a residential counselor. And he was like, they kept saying, kill Mo. He was like, Mo died. <laughs> he, could, he couldn't understand. Mo died. They no, killed they kept, Yeah, they kept talking about, they kept calling him Mo. Or yeah. they kept saying Mo. So he kept he kept hearing Mo. He thought Mo in was general, a person. In conversation. And then one day he heard, kill Mo. He said, wait, Mo died. <laughs> So just so y'all know, Mo is not a person. <laughs> Mo is any person. Okay. <laughs> I love that I can even laugh when thinking of them because they literally were that cool. They were that multi-layered. They were that brilliant. They showed me that grief and joy can happen simultaneously. They were so wise. Having to grow to age in, a, in an environment as such. Right. I say that I often say that my school sat on the corner of hope and hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And anything could happen. Mm -hmm. And and almost anything did happen. Mm -hmm. Bus stops weren't always safe. I increased my territory. I would walk down, not just to the block that my school was during dismissal. I would walk further up. And uh, really quickly, I want to shout out the brothers in that building. They saw how I cared. They knew that I was young. They knew that I had strength. They knew I had respect. But I remember one day, they called me in the office. These were older brothers, and they were upset with me for how far I had went past the school's jurisdiction to concern myself about the safety of the students. And they weren't upset with me because I went to go serve the students. They said, what are we supposed to tell Felicia if something happens to you? I remember this back then. 
And my brain now in understanding these men were fathers. So I help me understand how now, like my, cog- my cognition now lends me to understand what they were saying. Their wives were the mothers of their children, their households. I get the sacredness of that. At that time, Felicia and I were married for a year. I was a young husband. And in many times, I did go a distance that no other educator could or would go. Felicia understood my work. She understood my young people. She knew them. But I just want to take a second to reflect and understand the complexities of what they were saying to me now that I couldn't understand then because the level of love and respect and loyalty I have to your wellness, they would inform my decision-making differently, perhaps. I don't been in it, y'all. We're not talking about uh, basic conflict resolution. No. We're talking about weapons, pistols, poles, bats, cars, you name it. My young people were really carrying a lot. And that's because they had to go to school across town because this was also a specialized school. Appreciate you navigating us through how your experiences shaped your understanding of grief. I have so much appreciation for those students who were your teachers. And as I listen to the story again, and, and I, I know your background, I was present. And I remember at the time living in that, not fully understanding your students' behaviors, not understanding their choice behaviors concerning how they conducted themselves in the classroom, not even understanding the depths of what their emotional disabilities looked like, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like where my, my thinking was like, well, where does this come from? And I think, too, a lot of it is this unresolved, unattended to grief that keeps happening within their family structure, within their neighborhoods, having to walk down the streets. Like you say, there are teddy bears, balloons, liquor bottles that are empty. You see how they are memorializing Mm -hmm. their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And I think that even, and I have to admit this for myself, I may have even become desensitized to it. Mm -hmm. Thinking that, not directly thinking, but maybe even indirectly thinking that this is happening to them for some reason, right? Like something points to it. Like I, my brain tries to resolve why this is so. Man. And there is reinforcement from media and storytelling. There is reinforcement from narratives. There is reinforcement from Trayvon Martin case mm-hmm. in which that black boy was tried after he was killed. Mm-hmm. He was put on the stand. So there's reinforcement happening around us real time, cognitively, in layers that we don't see Mm -hmm. that teach us to think that way, that teach us to actually, our brain tries to figure out what were they doing to subject themselves to such outcomes, which is why you often, and I've seen this time and time again, where um, somehow black folks 
in the practice of trying to love and protect their children buy into a narrative that they can do something to keep their child more safe as in the neighborhood they should live in or what they should wear or what clothes they should wear. And we now know that the structures of white supremacy don't actually care where you live, what car you drive, what hoodie you have on, what hoodie you don't have on, you can't escape it, right? So when I say so that we can love more abundantly so we can see all the margins and make sure that if you have more resources in your household or your zip code, you're putting it in places where black children and black families may not have access to those resources. That's why I come to this conversation. That's why I want this union and this marriage to open up something and leave something for those who are coming before or behind us because it takes a multi-generational approach to love black people. It takes a multi-generational approach to really set up structures that aid in our liberation. What my young folks showed me was that it was not a choice behavior. It was it was not their decision to live this way, but they were showing me what it looks like to show up in spite of. No matter what time they got there, they were showing me what resilience looked like. They were authors of resilience. Their stories were so profound if we just took a chance to listen to them. So my young people taught me to listen to them. And when they heard me sharing my story, they would share their story. And when they heard my rhymes, they would share their rhymes. But I would show them about how I live or, or, or coming to work out with me on the weekend and let's go get a smoothie together. Let me show you what self-care looks like on my end. Let me show you the garden in my backyard. I want you to know these things, have these things, and attain these things because you know I'm no different than you. I would show that them that. part right there. I would show them that we are more alike than we are different. And every day that was my practice to show them they deserve this. They have to see this. We have to we have to unpack it. The the way they would walk to school, the way they would walk home, what they would show me in their neighborhoods when they let me in, right? I I remember, we shot summer roses in Lincoln Heights, right? This is this is like, the jacks for real. But I had to go there all the time, to drop students off after school or, to pick up and and the hood knew my car, and they knew I wasn't there for anything other than serving families. And there was a respect given to me on behalf of why I was there. Congress Heights, same thing. So I just wanna acknowledge my young people, my students, as my first teachers of love, my first mentors in grief. Um, this is where I would first have to practice uh, radical gentleness because the way schools, adults, people, anybody, the way they judge parents when parents aren't performing to the standard in which they think they're supposed to or to the standard in which they think their child's behavior warrants, we tell ourselves all types of things about how the parent doesn't care, won't show up, unresponsive, you create all these things. And we do not deserve, nor are we qualified to measure what that mother or that father's love looks like. I have come to know that they are trying their best under the circumstances that they have. And what parent doesn't want the best for their child, even if they cannot give it to them? And do you know what that crisis feels like of wanting better for your child, but you're not capable of giving them that better? 
Do you know what that feels like to your psyche day after day after day? And then to have the nerve to have reinforcement from a school call you and tell you that you care for your child less because you can't show up to the standard in which they're telling you, which already caused conflict because you want better for your child. So we have to not have this assault on the parents, on the people, on the community. It has to be built out of love and trust. That was my first intersection to this practice. This is my first intersection to loving what challenges me. When I learned to love them, I saw them in their strengths. When I saw them in their strengths, I can call their strengths forward. When I call their strengths forward regularly enough, they would then begin to understand that I see them and they would also let me see their vulnerabilities. They would also let me see what they were carrying. They'd also let me understand who they are. That made me a better educator, right? Because I wasn't teaching to the standard or the text. I was teaching to the people and giving them what they needed. And they would in turn give me what I needed. I'll take a deep breath here. And I love how you synthesize all of that for us. My favorite part in listening to you was that, rec- that what it took for you to recognize, and, and not that what it took for you, but I don't know how easily you forget. We're no different. We're no different. That's so important. That is how you set up the lens for love. Like that, That's where that comes from. You have to see them as whole people. And as I'm listening to the story, and I am also aware of that day when we lost our brother Kareem, mm-hmm. I'm also very much aware of how you further came to understand how quickly we try to put these narratives together of this person who has been mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember... Back home, they had already started putting together this story about Kareem. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't even get any like media attention yep. about it at first. Yep. Right? Yep. How quickly they design and reinforce these beliefs, these mis- really these misunderstandings that something like this happened to someone because of something that they did to make them deserving of this type of outcome. And when members, it wasn't, I think it was my family because we were too wounded to speak. But I think it was members from the community when they reached out and said, oh no, he was an educator at this school. Then the story changed. Then Then they went to his school to show his story and to have his students speak and to have teachers speak. And But I saw how quickly he was otherized and invisibilized. And that more often happens to the people in the margins. So what I'm saying is that my brother, my child is not more or less deserving of love and gentleness than someone else's child who loses their life to gun violence or neonatal loss. We are all equally deserving of this love. And I'm interested in designing a world and helping to introduce habits of mind that help us love more abundantly across these experiences because that is what we're going to need to see each other. We're going to need that to see each other. I I experienced so much, so much anger, so much pain, so much desire for retaliation concerning my brother's life being taken. And my students, 
could understand every level of my conversation. Hmm. Every level of my conversation they could understand and process with me. They were the first ones to encourage my light even when I didn't want to hear that shit. With your lyrics, might I add. They gave me my own lyrics. I wanted to slap those lyrics out of their hands or mouths. <laughs> Don't you give me that lyric. But they weren't holding it up to like, to like put it in my face. They were showing me that they know who I am and they know what it's like to have that pain. But when you know who you are and you know that there's a purpose here for you, you have to learn how to stand in that grief each day and let it grow you. This became my work. They designed it. They gave me the first invitation. They know how much I love my brother. They know that. They know that dearly and deeply. Marika, thank you again for taking the lead with this episode of Soul Affirmations and framing for us what gave you understanding of grief. I want to give a special shout out to your students in D.C. I love each and every one of them I've ever interacted with in the system. Everyone. From, from the very first one that kicked those papers off your desk on your very first day of school for no reason. He was beating or his he feet. Didn't have a reason. <laughs> hey, if y'all know D.C., he was on my desk he tapping his chest, making a beat, and beating his feet, and pump and punting papers off the desk. This is how it started. And God rest his soul. Yep. God rest his soul. I was in Baton Rouge visiting my big sister. And he called me like, hey, Bailey, are you in Louisiana? I said, yeah, why? Man, I'm out here too. No, you're not. And you're not about to call me out here in Baton Rouge. <laughs> now I'm out here visiting my uncle. He literally called me. We were both in Baton Rouge. <laughs> this young person uh, was the first one to teach me yeah. to have to love across the challenge. He demanded it of me. He demanded it of me, and I'm so glad he made me a better person. I'm so glad I met that challenge. He was recording music with us. Remember, he wanted that opportunity to record when he found out we had a recording studio at the house. Once he found out I had a recording studio at the house, guess guess who I could talk to now at school? The one who was punting papers off my desk. And guess who? He was interested. And he would let me pick him up on the weekends. And he had a rap. It's your boy, Dre Day. Got a lot of swag, seen a lot around my way. Oh, man, I love you. God rest your soul. Yes. Yes. Mm. I have. What a teacher he was. Yeah, he was. And, and James. Mm-hmm. Brother James, you mentioned Trevon. Mm-hmm. I can think of so many destiny. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, there's, there's so many students. Come on, it don't stop. I know, it doesn't, it doesn't stop. And you can even find evidence of these relationships in the video Roses that Kariga talked about in the video Fly Away. You can find those on YouTube, as a yep. matter of fact. Yep. Adrian. Yeah. All my ballers. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, man. Brock. Oh, it don't stop. Yeah. We took we took a trip with some students to Belize. We did actually. This, this same group of students, many of them came with. It was a it was a school sponsored trip to Belize. Sure did. Yeah, we did things. We <laughs> did things. We got out of Southeast for sure. We did. Yeah. Thank you, Kariga, also for just giving us insight in what it looks like to move at the speed of trust mm-hmm. and um, building these healthy relationships, um, which we all have a responsibility to do. 
and, and how we choose to practice love. May we all love more abundantly. Yes. So I'd like to, as, as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, you know, what affirmation like really fits uh, the closing out of this episode? And I think that it is today I will practice love by showing compassion to people or spaces often overlooked or intentionally silenced. I will practice love by showing compassion to people or spaces often overlooked or intentionally silenced. I'll just ask of the listeners this. If you stand in any place of privilege, even if in many spaces you don't, but if you stand in any space of privilege, be courageous and call another voice into the space. Or learn to listen to voices that speak differently from yours or not as loud as yours or not as vocal as yours or doesn't have the same vocabulary. But pay attention and make room to listen to one another across difference. Difference does not mean deficit. That's where our strengths lie. May we all love more abundantly. And if you like what you are hearing, we ask that you continue to tap in with us. Yes, you can get on board. You can rate it, uh, subscribe it, share it with a friend and like it if you really do like it. Um, <laughs> we want to connect with you all. Yes, um, please let us know what is something that is standing out for you. We, we'd love to interact with you and receive your feedback about it. Absolutely. You can feel free to reach us. Actually, uh, you can reach out to me with any interest, anything you heard from any of these episodes. Uh, you can find me at Kariga Bailey. Mm-hmm. Right? You can find me at Kiki Monique. Yep. That, you know how to spell it. You'll see it <laughs> on the pod. But I just, yeah, I want I want to engage around this because it's especially if you have the opportunity to learn from a young person, I want to encourage you to do that. Massive love. Thank you for coming to another episode of Soul Affirmations with Felicia and Kariga. <laughs> Peace.